We are in Romans 9, Romans 9, 14 through 29. Good to be back in the scriptures together. Last week, uh, my good friend Jason preached. I think he did a fantastic job, but I did miss preaching, and I'm excited to get back into the book of Romans. Whenever there's a national tragedy like we had this week in Uvalde, um, a preacher, you have to decide, should I address it directly with a passage, or should I just keep going in, in, in hopeful expectation that the word that we're going to preach will have an application to it? And that's what I decided to do. We're just going to continue with Romans 9, um, which speaks about God as the ultimate decision maker. God is the ultimate decision maker. We've been looking at Romans 9 through 11. I've talked about, we've been, for those who are maybe visiting, we've been going through Romans for months and months now. Um, we covered the first seven chapters, which really outlines what the gospel, the good news, the central message of the Christian faith really is. That we are sinners cut off from God's grace, cut off from his, uh, under God's judgment, under wrath because of our sin. But God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place to rescue us and redeem us. And through faith, in faith alone in him, do we find salvation. We are no longer slaves to the law. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are free. And then chapter 8 really talked about the Christian life being a spirit-filled life. And I mentioned that 9 through 11 kind of takes the letter to the Romans in a different direction. And really deals with this key issue of Israel and the gospel. If, if Israel is God's chosen people, are God's chosen people, and the gospel is that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, has come into the world to rescue and redeem us, why is it that the majority, not entirety, but the majority of Israel has not received their Messiah? And why is it that all the Gentiles got in? And what's going to happen going forward? And what we saw in the last section that was two weeks ago is that God is sovereign over election. Is that fair? Is that just that God sovereignly is working out his plan? God is the ultimate decider. There's a story of a great debate, one of the greatest debates perhaps of history, was between Martin Luther, the great reformer who started the Reformation, and a famous theologian by the name of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus of Rotterdam was a Catholic theologian, but a very forward-thinking one, uh, probably the greatest mind of his day. Some would say a greater mind than Martin Luther. And they debated this very issue. Does God choose, does God have the ultimate decision over our salvation? And Erasmus argued that no, he leaves us to make the decision in the end. And Luther made the argument that no, God chooses. He is the ultimate decider. Well, the debate was summed up like this later on. Erasmus' argument was, Luther, let God be just. Let God be fair. And Luther's argument was summarized as this, Erasmus, let God be God. We're in chapter 9 of Romans, starting at verse 14, and we will finish up in verse 29. We read this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the proclamation, and the application of his word this morning. God is the ultimate Decider, here's where we're going. Verses 14 to 18, God has mercy and he hardens. 19 to 24, God has the right, has the right to decide. And then 25 to 29, God has always worked this way. Let me just say from the outset, this is a difficult passage. All right, this is a controversial passage of scripture. For those who have been going through Romans with me, uh, you know that the big picture of the gospel is the mercy of God in sending his son to redeem and to save us. But here we're in a section of scripture that is really plunging the depths of the sovereignty of God when it comes to our salvation. So here's what I'm going to ask of you guys as those who are listening to this. Follow what the passage is saying. In other words, don't try to make excuses for it. Don't try to make it more palatable or just find a way around what it's saying. Let's just first say, what does this passage actually say? What is it actually saying? Let's receive that, and then let's begin to think about what the application is. I believe that's my job to you guys as a preacher and as your pastor to give you the word as it's written and what it has to say, uh, that God is the ultimate decider. So first, 14 to 18, God has mercy and God Hardens. God has mercy and he hardens. And he asks the question, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, if God is the one who sovereignly chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to receive his grace, to bear his light, to have the sacrificial system to reveal the Torah to them, and then Jesus comes to them and they are hardened. They don't receive this gospel. They don't receive Jesus for the most part. Many do, but for the most part. And that God hardens them so that the Gentiles now receive this. And he, their eyes are opened. And then eventually, 
when the full number of Gentiles, we'll talk about that later, comes in, Israel's hearts will be open and they'll receive it. Doesn't that mean that God is somehow unjust if he's the one who's pulling all the strings behind the scenes? And Paul's answer is that strongest negation, we've seen this earlier in Romans, by no means. Absolutely not. And remember, this is the strongest way to say no in the Greek language. May, it, may the thought never even come to mind. God is never unjust. The judge of all the earth will only do what is right. But as he says in verse 15, God has the right to have mercy where he wants to have mercy. He says to Moses, and you can read this right in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. If God would choose, if God chooses to show mercy to one people, that's the original content there in the, in the book of Exodus, then he has the right to do that. He's God. Does he have to show mercy to everyone equally all at the same time? No, it's mercy. Mercy is offered undeserved. Verse 16, he says, So then it depends not on human will. It's not ultimately our decision to say, God is going to give me mercy. It's God's decision if he's going to show mercy. Nor on exertion, work, running, is what it literally says. It's not as if I need to do a set of particular uh, sort of uh, rituals in order to make it so that God shows me mercy. It's not human will. It's not work. What is it then? Verse 16, but on God who has mercy. Now you might say, okay, that makes sense, Pastor Rick. God chooses to show mercy when he wants to show mercy. What about the flip side of that? Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and you guys know the story of the great exodus here, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and in my name be proclaimed in all the earth. And this is his conclusion of this section, verse 16, 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, I believe what he's saying here is God's hardening is to leave people over to their own sinful devices. We've already read that in Scripture earlier on, that we are in rebellion in our natural sort of state, in rebellion against God, and for God to harden us is to leave us be. But God is ultimately in control, and so he's not only the one who gives mercy, he is the one who chooses then to harden. All right, hard teaching. You guys with me? <laughs> told you this is not an easy section of scripture. We're plunging the depths of understanding election and God's sovereignty. A few things, let me say that he is clearly not saying in this passage. He is not saying in this passage that human beings are therefore not accountable. That we are basically programmable machines who do whatever God sort of ultimately like a robot sets and programs in us. That's not what he's saying. We see that in the broader picture. Interestingly enough, if you take God out of the picture entirely and you look at human beings as merely biological machines, because that's what we are, outside of God's spirit or the spirit, a spirit created by God in us, then we are machines. We are no more than that. And you could actually determine the future if you knew all the different uh, parts of the equation. We are no more than biological machines. Our brains and our bodies do nothing more than what our physiology determines. But that is not how God has created us. God has created us so that we are actual living beings who have agency, who make decisions. He is not saying that we don't have a will. In fact, he said specifically, it depends not on human will. 
which means there is such a thing as a human will, right? We do actually make decisions. We do actually exist in this universe. It's not as if everything is just sort of written out and just happening um, as if we're just characters in a book with no actual agency. Follow me so far? In fact, even John Calvin, the great sort of starter of Calvinism, said the will is not destroyed, but rather repaired by grace. We do have a will. It's in bondage to sin. And in Christ, that will has has begun to be restored again. I think, friends, what this passage does in some ways is it flips on its head our view of God. We think that we have the right to his mercy. (laughs) When in reality, what we deserve is the judgment of our sin. And if God chooses to show mercy... That's his prerogative. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine uh, you come into a great deal of money and you decide, I want to give away $50,000 to some charity. And you look at different charities and you decide to give to one particular one. You decide to give to the Wounded Warrior Project, right? Good Memorial Day um, weekend uh, idea. You decide to give $50,000 as a donation to the Wounded Warrior Project. Can you imagine someone saying to you, you are being completely unfair because you didn't give $50,000 to every charity, right? You would say, no, that's not how it works, right? I mean, I don't have to give this. I want to give this, and I'm glad to do it. I'm glad to offer this generosity, but I'm not obligated to give it to every charity in the world. In the same sense, God showing mercy is his grace that is offered to us. It is not demanded upon God. John Stott, famous uh, theologian who's always fair, writes this, the fact is, as Paul demonstrated in the early chapters of his letter, that all human beings are sinful and guilty in God's sight, so that nobody deserves to be saved. If therefore God hardens some, he is not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, He is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anyone is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. Friends, here's the good news before we move on to the next section. God does have mercy. (laughs) He does show compassion. Yes, it would be fair for God to simply judge the world as our sins deserve, but that's not what he does. In his mercy and grace, he extends the gospel to sinners. He extends the message of salvation to me, (laughs) to you, that he calls us to himself and allows us as his people to really know his love and his grace. Yes, There is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ, but there is salvation. There is a means in which we can receive the mercy and the love of God. It remains his prerogative. Well, you say, okay, Pastor Rick, that's hard. (laughs) That's a hard teaching. It gets harder, all right? Just to warn you here. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? So, So we can understand the question. If God is the one who has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants, then how, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right? Well, 
if, if God is the one pulling the strings, then how does he still find fault? Erasmus' argument, let God be just. And his answer, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You're the clay, he's the potter. You're the molded, he's the molder. He has the right to make, as a, as a potter makes certain lumps of clay, some, let's say, for a beautiful mug that they, or vase or something that they display in their living room. Another they might take and make an ashtray that's used for ashes. God has the right over all things as he's God. You say, well, okay, Pastor Rick, I think, I've, I think, I think we've gone deep enough. No, nope, there's one step even deeper. Okay, again, let the scripture say what it says here, verse 22. Now he poses it in the form of a question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And if he did that, why? To make the glories, the riches of his glory known to us who are the recipients of his mercy. Now that's a hard take, hard teaching. Let me just say a few things about that. First of all, notice he poses it in the form of a question. I don't think he poses it in the form of a question to say it's not true. He poses it in the form of a question because right here we are at the sort of deepest level of trying to understand God's sovereignty and election, and there is great mystery here, friends. Uh, we, we are we are trying to understand something that is almost incomprehensible to us. Like we don't really have a good grasp on things like infinity. Right? or time, or even consciousness. How is it that our brains, are, which are made of matter, do have all this idea of complicated thought and so forth? We are, we are getting into things that are really beyond us. So it's posed as the form, in the form of a question, but he is sort of sticking it in our face. It's a little meant to be a little punch to our ego. What if God did choose some ultimately for dishonorable use to make his wrath known and his justice. And what if God did choose some to be the recipients of his mercy? If that's the case, who are we to tell God that's not how you're supposed to do it? <laughs> who are we? It's sort of like uh, in the book of Job, we see this, a similar sort of picture. Uh, Job challenges God, even though he is faithful. And God's answer is, Job, who are you? You, you are... you're not the one who has made the universe and set it into being. There are certain things that are beyond you. And so I think he's saying similarly here in this passage, this is something beyond our full comprehension. But friends, even if God did it, he's God. He didn't say, you know what, I'm, I'm I'm really interested in hearing Rick Harrington's advice on this. Uh, idea of the election here, right? Uh, you know, we like to talk about politics a lot of times, and we talk about presidential politics and your thoughts on Trump and your thoughts on Biden. And don't worry, I'm not going to go in either direction there. I'm just mentioning it in general. You know, we say, oh, he should have done this, and they should do this when it comes to Ukraine, and they should do this. And guess what, friends? Neither Trump before nor Biden now is sitting there saying, really? I was really hoping to, you would sort of give me your input, Rick Harrington, on how I should deal with these subjects, right? Some things are beyond me. They don't belong. The decision-making doesn't belong to me. If God chooses to do this, he's God. And here's, I think, the point, friends. It's a sort of intentional punch to our ego. We're not God. We're not the top of the food chain. God is. And he makes the ultimate decision, and we can trust in him in that. 
Now, he's not here sort of attacking someone who has genuine questions. Uh, he's, attacking, he's attacking the rebel, the one who says God doesn't have the right to do what he wants to do. John Stott says, Paul is not wishing to stifle genuine questions. After all, he has been asking and answering questions throughout the chapter, and indeed the whole letter. Well, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce said, it is the God-defying rebel and not the bewildered seeker after the truth whose mouth he so peremptorily shuts. Let me just say this, though. If we receive this passage as what it says, there is actually something very comforting about this. You say, what is that, Pastor Rick? God has got the whole thing in his hands. Not me. The truth of the matter is, friends, I don't want to be the decider. <laughs> there are certain things that are beyond me, and I don't, I don't want, I would mess it up. I would mess it up the very moment I was given the decision-making power to decide. Um, if you said, uh, so let's say, I'd say, I want to save everybody. Everybody gets to heaven. Okay, even, even the shooter in Uvalde. Even the child molester. Even the genocidal tyrants. I just want to answer every prayer, every prayer with a yes, right? Everybody gets what they want. The world would be in total chaos and probably end tomorrow, right? Uh, there are certain, I want to, no natural disasters are allowed to happen. Uh, no earthquakes, so the tectonic plates aren't able to shift. And, and Can you imagine the problems that would arise? There is a certain comfort in saying, I'm not God. He's got this in, in control and he's sovereign. If we're really the ultimate decision maker, the future is truly unknown and uncertain. But if God is the one who's working out his plan, there is a certain sense in which you can rest in that. John MacArthur said, if we could lose our salvation, we would. <laughs> right? I mean, we, we just don't have the wisdom to handle certain things that are truly beyond us. Rest, trust, be assured in the sovereign hand of God. And in this third section here, he gives us a sense that this is always how God has worked. What he provides for us is a litany of Old Testament sort of verses describing the hand of God. He first mentions Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. God has the right to add to his people. So he's sort of going back to the original question of what's going on between Israel and the gospel. And if God wants to add to his people, he can do that. God has always done that. He's done that throughout the Old Testament. He's added folks like Tamar or Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, or Ruth, the Moabitess. God has always had his plan um, bigger than merely just Israel. In verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they'll be called sons of the living God. There's the idea of adoption. God has the right to add. Then he turns to Isaiah concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, ethnic Israel is diverse. There are multiple millions and millions. Only a remnant of them will be saved. We looked at this two weeks ago as well. That even within Israel, there is a remnant. There is a true and faithful believing Israel, and that's always been God's plan. Even in Israel's worst days... <laughs> When they were truly in rebellion against God, you think of the days of the kings or judges. There's a point in which, uh, in Kings, it describes Israel. It says they had become more wicked than the Canaanites that were driven out of the land in order to bring Israel into that land to worship the Lord. Even then, God had his remnant. He had his people. He continues this section here. Verse 29. If the Lord of hosts meaning the Lord Almighty, that's what the Lord of hosts means, had not left us offspring 
we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God had the right to judge all, and in his mercy, he extends grace to save some. Here's the point, friends, that going back to this original subject of is God just when it came to Israel? Of course he is. Uh, God always had a people that belongs to him. It was true in Jesus' day with his 12 apostles, minus Judas, add Matthias. It was true in the earliest days of the Christian church, the church in Jerusalem. It was true all throughout history. There's always been part of ethnic Israel that really does receive their Messiah. And even today, thankfully, which is why we support Mitch Foreman's ministry, right? Which is the idea that God has a faithful, believing Israel at all times. And more than that, God adds to his people us Gentiles, who now belong to him as well. He is sovereign and he's in control. We serve a big God. A big God. C.S. Lewis writes this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is on the dock. On the dock, in British, means basically he's on trial. And you think about it, friends, that is exactly how we look at God, right? Well, God, you can't do that. That's not fair. That's not just. (laughs) I can't believe in a God like that. I've heard some say, well, my God would not do that, as if we get to create our own separate little gods. What we read about here in Scripture is that God is the one who sovereignly works by his hand. See, I think one of the things I think we've gone wrong a bit here in American Christianity is we like to picture God as this grandfatherly-like figure who sits above all of creation and lets it be. Right? He's the man upstairs. (laughs) He's the guy with the big, long-flowing beard. He's the clockmaker who sets the world into motion, and he can't interfere. He's not allowed to do anything in this world but watch. God can know the future, but he can't actually determine anything to get us to the future. And what we see in Scripture is something very different. We see a God who is the potter in us the clay. And that is always how God has worked. In Job 10.9, remember that you have made me like clay. And will you return me to the dust? Isaiah 64, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Jeremiah 18, 5, 6, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Isaiah 29, You turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Friends, God has always had his hand in history, in our lives, and sovereignly at work. God is the one who has mercy. And he's the one who hardens. God is the one who has the right to decide. And God has always worked this way. Why is this revealed to us? 
So important, friends, as we kind of bring, come this, bring this section to a conclusion here. This is not revealed to us because we have some sort of say over who is chosen and whom judge uh, has mercy on, whom he doesn't. In fact, we have no insight. <laughs> we cannot put on sort of special glasses that reveal those whom God is going to have mercy and those whom he's not. And I'm thankful for that. And so from our perspective, we evangelize everyone. We share the gospel with anyone and everyone. From our perspective, we pray for anyone and everyone that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not why this is given. Why then are we told this insight? What's the purpose of letting us know? To remind us that he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. And the world may at times feel absolutely chaotic. It may seem for the moment that darkness has won. When some kid walks into a school and shoots 19 kids. We serve serve a sovereign God who is working out his plan. This is given to us so that we can take confidence that God will work out his plan faithfully to the end for you, for me, and for all of his people. He's the ultimate decider. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much that you are the potter and we are the clay, but you are good. You're good, 100% good. (laughs) If I was the decider, I am not even close to 100% good. I would wreck everything. But we serve a God who is ultimately in control and is 100% good. And though the world may be in a time of darkness for now, we know the day is coming. The day is coming when Christ returns and all that is wrong will be set right. In this upside-down world will be turned right-side up. And we are people who have received your mercy through Jesus Christ. will praise your name forever. In Christ we pray. Amen.